The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to come to you in prayer. Thank you for the provision of this building, for your continued grace to provide for the needs of this congregation. Thank you for this congregation, their uh, desire to know your word, their desire to take the time out of their busy schedules to focus on that which has an eternal value and has eternal meaning, that which gives stability in our lives and is the basis for our happiness. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening, you Help us to understand these things that we might have a greater appreciation for Abraham, the lessons that you have for us from Abraham, that these things may become part of our soul, part of our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24. We're almost halfway through Genesis. It's only taken us hundred. Twelve hours to get this far. There's a lot here. I often used to wonder and think, uh, no, we're in Genesis 25. We are almost halfway done. I always wondered on the basis of how some people taught Genesis, how how pastors would do that. It's 50 chapters. If you just covered one chapter a week, that would be 50 weeks. You see, somewhere out there in, in... church land somewhere. People get the idea that you don't want to spend more than two or three months on a book because people get bored. And I always wonder, well, how in the world would you teach something like Genesis or Isaiah or Ezekiel in less than at least one, one chapter a week? And that just doesn't even do justice to the text. So we've been going through and not quite at a snail's pace, but we have certainly been digging into the Word. And one of the things that I pointed out when I started this study, a new idea I had, was to develop sort of three different levels or uh, categories of Bible classes related to the study of a book. And one reason I did that is because uh, often you have prep school teachers or pastors or somebody who just needs a quick overview of the book. They don't have time to listen to 200 or 300 hours of Genesis in order to teach Genesis in a 12-week quarterly Sunday school class. So I decided to break things down into A, B, and C uh, nomenclature. And A lessons are survey summary lessons that cover multiple chapters and give an overview so that if you wanted to, you could come in and listen to all of the A-designated lessons and you might have 18 hours or 20 hours on Genesis and that would give you the rough overview that you could see where all the major doctrines fit into the study of the book. 
the B lessons are those where we're doing verse by verse uh, exegetical development of, of each uh, chapter going working our way slowly through the book and then the C designated uh, lessons are those that are breakout studies where we look at uh, topics or studies that are touched on or developed a little bit in Genesis but we want to spend a little more time studying those topics as they uh, fit within the book of, uh, of Genesis well tonight and next week we're doing some summary because we are coming upon the end of the life of Abraham. And since I went back and looked, and I think it was lesson 64 or 65 was the first lesson in Abraham, and that was over a year ago. I figured you all don't remember everything there is to remember about Abraham, so we need a good review and summary just to sort of lock a few things into our thinking before we move on to Isaac. Now let's start with Genesis 25, uh, and we look at verses 1 through 11, give us the last 11 verses on Abraham's life. And they're basically uh, summary verses. There's not a lot here related to doctrine. There is related to a framework for setting up the rest of Scripture. We've already seen as we've gone through the life of Abraham, the beginning of the Ishmaelites, who become an uh, Arab tribe. They assimilate with other Arabs into, um, into the sort of the uh, melting pot of Arab, uh, Arab races and Arab tribes. And then we see the origin of the Moabs, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, who are the two sons of Lot by way of his two daughters. And they also have become assimilated into uh, Arab uh, tri- tribes and, and races since, uh, since the ancient times. And this time we're going to get into some more. We see in verse 1 that Abraham again took a wife. Now Abraham is in, in his, uh, he's 130 something. Not 30 something but 130 something. And so obviously the rejuvenation of his sexual abilities that gave him the the ability to produce Isaac didn't go away. And he still has the physical abilities to produce children. And so through his second wife, Keturah, he gives birth to six uh, sons, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now, we don't hear too much about any of those, but we do about Midian. And so this is the progenitor of the Midianites. And one of the Midianites down several generations from now is going to be uh, Zipporah, who will be a wife of, of Moses. So the Midianites are first cousins, as it were, to the Jews. Jokshan begots Sheba and Dedan. These are, there's a Dedan and a Sheba listed back in uh, Genesis chapter 11 related to Arab tribes and so these are the same names I don't think they're related the others are the progenitors of the Arab tribes and uh, these nothing more said about these in scripture the sons of Dedan are the Asherim uh, Latushim and the Leumim and these were different clans and tribal groups that assimilated into the uh, overall Arab uh, tribal mix Verse 4, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abedah, and Eldaah, and all these were the children of Keturah. Now the reason that this is put in the text is simply to show that Abraham had these other children. It gives us a, a, a background for when we run into the Midianites and uh, maybe one or two of these other names later on in Exodus and later on in the Pentateuch. But the point is that he has other children but he gives everything to Isaac. Isaac is the promised seed. So he gives the major inheritance to, to Abraham. He gives gifts to the sons of the concubines. He takes care of them in grace and generously. But he sends them away from Isaac in order to protect the seed. That's the point of verse 6. So these six verses simply tell us that he remarries. He has other children. They eventually melt into the... Uh, Arab mix, but he has protected Isaac as the promised seed. And then we have a closing statement, obituary actually, on 
Abraham, starting in verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. So he lived 75 years after Isaac. Now, Isaac is going to give birth to Jacob and Esau when he is 60. Now think about this a minute. When Isaac is 60, he gives birth to Jacob and Esau. That means Abraham is 15 years before his death. So Abraham, this is not chronological. The writer, Moses, is concluding the story of Abraham here, even though Abraham goes on and lives 15 years into the life of Esau and Jacob. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael, notice that they come together. They, we don't know if they were uh, distant from each other, but they, they both cared about their father, came together, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. He's buried with Sarah. And this is the field that he purchased for Sarah's burial. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham in verse 11 that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy. That was the well that was where Hagar had seen God face to face. And that brings us to the conclusion of the genealogy of Terah. Terah is Abraham's father. And remember I pointed out that that what you have in, throughout Genesis to show these, these markers is this phrase, this is the genealogy of so-and-so. The Hebrew word is toledot, and toledot really has the idea of this is the history, or this is what happens to the descendants of so-and-so. And so the genealogy, or the toledot of Terah, began back in 11, chapter 11, verse 26 or 27, and extends all the way down to 2511. So that's some uh, uh, 14 chapters that we've gone through, and so it's time to have some review. Starting in verse 12, we'll get into the very brief Toledot of Ishmael, which just goes down through verse 18, and then we have the Toledot of Isaac begin in verse 19. So we're going to do, in the next two or three weeks, depending on how far we get tonight, we're going to do summary review of Abraham, and then we'll do an overview to see where we're going to go with Isaac. So the next two or three weeks are going to be focusing on getting the big picture. It's so important to have that big picture so that you understand the details of what's going on in the text. That's one of the reasons why I encourage you to read your Bible on a regular basis. We sent, I sent out a thing, a little Bible challenge uh, the other day. I don't know how many of you saw that on email. I know a few of you were nodding your heads and decided ha- learned how well you knew the Scriptures. And that's on the Back to the Bible, I guess it's backtothebible.org website. For those of you who don't know, Back to the Bible was one of these original radio broadcast shows that originated back in the 30s by Theodore Epp. I once read a biography of Theodore Epp and he was just a tremendous man of faith like so many were back in the uh, early days, you might say, uh, in the 20s and the 30s of radio and television, and a real vision of how radio and television could be used to communicate the gospel and teach the word. And they've had a tremendous ministry over the years. But this was a Bible challenge quiz that had different levels, beginner, intermediate, and advanced, as well as about five different uh, subject areas. So you could test yourself on your knowledge of biblical geography and biblical characters and scripture references. I just love that one. I saw various comments from some people who didn't do so well on scripture references. Uh, where do you find things in the Bible? Isn't that, that's the hardest thing, I think, for all of us. I remember years ago thinking, oh, I know where that is. It's somewhere in the Bible. That's not quite good enough. So if you haven't had a chance to sort of test yourself and see how well you know Scripture, then uh, you ought to take take a shot. That's always a little bit humbling to uh, take tests like that and realize that we don't know quite as much as we think we do. But we ought to be reading through Scripture on a regular basis. Now, let's look at what we've done with Abraham. The New Testament 
mentions Abraham many times, and there's two key passages that we looked at at the very beginning. In Acts chapter 7, which is part of Stephen's speech just before he's stoned by the uh, Sanhedrin, and then Hebrews chapter 11. In Acts 7, 2, Stephen says, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So he gives a nice summary for us. He lives in Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham was born. Then he moved north to Haran, which is up in north central Syria today. And God said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. This was the promise, the focus on the land. Acts 7.4 Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. What's the point in that, that uh, Stephen is making in these three verses? It's the land. This is still the land that God gave us. Even though the Jew, there's a vast number of Jews were scattered throughout the uh, Greek and Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire at this time, there is still a belief that the land was given to Israel. Even, note this, Stephen is saying this after the crucifixion. He doesn't buy into what covenant theologians would say is that, that the land promise no longer applied to Israel because they've, they uh, crucified the Messiah. This is still their land. Acts 7.5 And God gave him no inheritance in it. Not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. What a powerful verse to indicate that there's a future for Israel. Because if God promised an inheritance to Abraham when he was alive, and he never had a possession when he was alive other than the uh, grave site for, for uh, he and Sarah, then God must in the future fulfill that promise and give him the possession of the land. And then we looked at Hebrews 11.8, which focuses on the faith that Abraham had. That whole chapter focuses on the faith of different Old Testament saints. And the idea there isn't so much on the fact that they believed, it's what they believed. We use that word faith in two different senses. One is the act of believing or the act of trusting. The other is what you trust in. It's not faith in faith. It's not just the act of believing that has value. It's what you believe. And Abraham believed the promise of God. That was the focus in the Old Testament. It's still our focus. And one of the things that, that came, really hit me as I went back and have reviewed Hebrews 11 uh, through 25 is two things that stand out in terms of the character of God. One is His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Over and over again, God proves Himself faithful to His promise. No matter how Abram disobeyed, no matter what he did, no matter how he screwed up trying to solve the problems himself, God remained faithful, steadfast. And that correlates to the second attribute of God that that stood out in my mind, and that is the attribute of his, his loyal love, chesed. Sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes love, sometimes steadfast love. The, the, there's a, it, the, the word itself in Hebrew has a, has a wealth of meaning. It focuses on the fact that God is true to his covenant. He is always going to act toward us in loyalty and in love, and he will never leave us or forsake us. And both of these elements of God, God's character stand out for us in, in Genesis so that whatever we go through, we can rely upon a God who is faithful and loyal and will never desert us. So in Hebrews 11:8 and following, we're told that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Notice that embedded right there in 11:9, he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So you wouldn't catch that. If I had pointed out at the beginning that, that Jacob and Esau are born 15 years before Abraham dies. So he has his grandsons 
with him for 15 years before he dies. And they're still dwelling in tents. They're not in permanent housing. For they're looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Personal sense of eternal destiny. They're focused on what God is eventually going to do. And he's never fulfilled that. So we know that God will eventually fulfill that promise. Now when we looked at Abraham at the very beginning, I said that when we come to a study of of Abraham and we look into the New Testament, we see that there are six different ways that the New Testament focuses our attention back on Abraham. And this tells us that there are six central core doctrines that come out of Abraham that we learn historically or in the progress of revelation. As you progress from Genesis through Revelation, God adds incrementally information and reveals uh, new doctrines, new information. It doesn't change anything, but he, it expands. This is called progressive revelation so that, uh, so that Noah knew more than Adam and Abraham knew more than Noah. Joseph knows more than Abraham and David knows more than Joseph. And there's a progress of revelation. First thing that we see emphasized in the New Testament is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the positional truth doctrine for Israel. This is their position in Abraham. The covenant gives them security. That covenant is never going to be breached or taken away. Second thing we saw was that Abraham is the picture of justification at salvation phase one. If you want a a, to go to a, a situation in history, a, an individual's life, to teach justification, salvation, you go to Abraham. It's developed in Romans 4 in the New Testament. Third, he is the picture of justification at spiritual maturity. Another word I used there was vindication, that he vindicates his faith, his belief, his doctrine what he has learned, that he hasn't been just a hearer, but he's a hearer and an applier. Uh, James 2 focuses on that particular subject. So the first three doctrines that come out of Abraham that are important to know for the rest of Scripture, Abrahamic covenant, justification of phase one, justification at spiritual maturity. Then fourth, we learn about spiritual advance through the faith rest drill. This is the whole point of Hebrews 11, 8 and following. Is that Abraham goes from spiritual birth when he's justified by faith. He starts as a spiritual infant. He goes to that vindication stage of spiritual maturity incrementally by passing various tests. Going through and trusting God or in some cases failing to trust God and his uh, progress to spiritual maturity. Then fifth, he is a picture of election, that God chooses certain people for certain tasks in history, not for salvation, but he chooses Abraham, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of what he is going to do through Abraham in history. It is not a choice related to salvation. Is a choice related to his role in history. And then missions. Missions. That all nations will be blessed through Abraham. So this becomes the foundation for the doctrine of missions. In the Old Testament, Israel wasn't commanded to send out missionaries. They were commanded to be obedient to God. And then when people traveled to Israel, they would see this tremendous culture, this tremendous civilization that was built on a relationship with God. And then the travelers who came would, uh, in theory, go back home and take the gospel. And that did happen at times. But most of the time, Israel decided that they were going to compromise with the pagans around them. And so they weren't a witness at all. In the New Testament... God shifts, the church goes out, there's not a nation per se, there is a people, the church, and they are sent to all the nations in the world. So these six doctrines come out of Abraham and become a foundation for the rest of Scripture. This builds a framework of thinking in our soul so that we can look at different 
elements of, of history and of life uh, through the grid of Scripture. What I want to do is review each of these as we went through uh, our study of Abraham. So we'll start off with the Abrahamic covenant. And by now, everybody ought to be able to say land, seed, and blessing in their sleep. And that's our initial chart. The Abrahamic covenant is a promise of land. To have a nation, you not only have to have a land, you have to have a people. And that's the seed. The seed, he's promised multiple descendants that will be more numerous than the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And through these people, he will bring a blessing to all the nations. These three elements are further expanded in three later covenants. The land is expanded in the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses talks about another covenant that is different from the covenant at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. The seed is the Davidic covenant, and that focuses ultimately on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the blessing is expanded in what's called the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So if, to understand those subsequent covenants, you have to have, understand the Abrahamic covenant as, as the foundation. Okay, review of the Abrahamic covenant. This is so important because there's so much repetition all the way through through Genesis. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, I'm, I'm trying to make it count, but there's at least, at least, at a minimum, 25 different reiterations of some aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. What do you think the Holy Spirit's trying to say with that much repetition? That he he states it to Abraham. There's a there's a, a, a sort of a um, preview of coming attractions in Genesis chapter 12. Then in Genesis 15, you have uh, further development of the of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17 is when the covenant is cut, or, or the sign of the covenant, the the um, uh, circumcision. Genesis 15 is when the covenant is cut. Genesis 17 is the sign of the covenant. Then it's reiterated numerous times to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Joseph. And then when God shows up to Abraham, I mean to Moses in Exodus, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, jo- Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am going to give you the land that I promised to them. So to understand that promise, you have to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. And then you go through Numbers, and he's taking the people to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Joshua, they conquer the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Judges, they're in the land, but they can't be obedient. And so then you go on through the rest of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is predicated on understanding the Abrahamic covenant. So in terms of review, point number one, the overall covenant promises land, descendants, the seed, and a blessing. The preview is given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Second point is the emphasis on the land. Genesis 12, 7 reiterates the land promise. Genesis 13, 5, God expanded this to all the land that you can see. Then in Genesis 15:18, he gives the boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, all the land that incorporates uh, modern Israel, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, some of Syria, uh, m- most of Iraq, uh, some of the northern part of uh, Saudi Arabia. All of this is part of the land grant that God gave to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17:8 defines it as the whole land of Canaan. God gives them that title deed. That's the foundation for their claim to the land. Then third, the descendants. See, we've looked at uh, land and now seed. The descendants are going to be a great nation in 12.2. In 13.16, they would be described as numerous as the dust of the earth. In 15.5, like the stars in the sky. Genesis 16, the descendants would be innumerable. Genesis 17, a multitude of nations. Kings shall be descended from you. That's one of the reasons you have this genealogy given at the beginning of Genesis 25, is these are the nations that are coming forth from Abraham as God promised. So again and again you see this theme of promise and fulfillment. God is faithful to His Word. And then there's divine protection 
in Genesis 12:2, God will curse those who treat Abram lightly. And this is the scourge of anti-Semitism. And today we see anti-Semitism in a new guise, anti-Zionism, that rather than being in, uh, having hatred towards Jews individually, the guise of anti-Semitism today is against Jews having a right to the land today. And this is an extremely subtle form of anti-Semitism. And people want to make decisions, uh, political decisions. Why do they have a right to the land? Various various, uh, political figures have uh, raised questions as to where they should stay in the land. Just recently, the, uh, the president of Iran said that we need to wipe Israel out. This is anti-Zionism. That's the new form of anti-Semitism. In chapter 15, there was a warning to Abram that there would be a future slavery, but there would be deliverance. They would go out for 400 years, and they would be slaves in another country. That was fulfilled in Egypt, and then deliverance, and they would be brought back. But in 17.7, God reminded him that this is an eternal covenant. There would be no change. So all of that is a review of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the second thing that I pointed out that is grounded in Abraham is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That was, uh, those were fighting words 400 years ago. In the 1600s, if you believed in justification by faith alone, you could lose your life. There was a period of time there during the late 1500s and early 1600s in England, especially in the 1500s when you went from when after Henry VIII died and then it went to Edward who was a Protestant. And when Edward was a king and he was a Protestant, it was great to be a Protestant. And all the, They called them gospelers. And they were out evangelizing and preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone. But Edward was only the king for a couple of years and then he died and he died young and then they had to go to his sister of course his sister had been brought up uh, in a convent and she was uh, firmly committed to uh, Roman Catholicism and hated the Protestants and so suddenly being a Protestant was a, a capital offense and called for the death penalty and one day she burned over 300 Protestants at the uh, field at Smithfield and, and that's what earned her the name of of Bloody Mary. And so if you believed in justification by faith alone, it wasn't just some nice doctrine to be aware of. It would cost you your life. And today we, we argue about these things as if they don't really matter. And we have churches that never talk about this. But this is if you don't understand justification by faith alone, I'm not sure you really understand the gospel. That doesn't mean you aren't saved. But that means you have no clue what it's all about. So we look at justification by faith alone, and this is grounded in Abraham. And the key verse on this is Genesis 15:6, which states, And he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him or imputed it to him for righteousness. So you have three key doctrines here. Faith, imputation, and justification. That's what's grounded in this particular verse. It is a parenthetical verse, as I pointed out when we did the exegesis, which shows that after God had promised Abraham in the first five verses that he would give him a seed, he'd be more numerable than the stars in the heaven, the writer reminds us that Abraham had already trusted God. The verb there is a familiar one, aman, from which we get our word amen, meaning to be firm, trustworthy, safe. It means to trust, to rely upon something because it is firm and dependable. Now, it's in the perfect tense in the, in the Hebrew, which indicates uh, the uh, ongoing results of completed action in the past. So it should be translated, and he had already believed in the Lord, and he had accounted it to him for righteousness. This had occurred not in Genesis 15. Genesis 15:6 is actually a reminder of what took place previously, what had taken place in the past before Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham had at some time in his youth trusted in the Lord. According to the Jews, he trusted in the Lord when he was a child, but that's more legend than fact. And 
fact, when you read some of their stuff, it gets really sort of magical and mystical. And they have Abraham. Some of their rabbinical writings have Abraham performing miracles when he's a teenager. So you can't rely a whole lot on some of that material. The concept of justification is fairly simple. We have a God who is righteous and he's just. He is a holy God. In order to have a relationship with him, we must have the same righteousness. Now, the problem that we have is we lack righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, as King James said. Not our unrighteous deeds, but our righteous deeds, the best that we have to offer. We dust it all off, shine it up, and it's garbage in God's eyes. We're minus R. But Jesus Christ is plus R. He's perfect righteousness. So that at the cross, our sins are poured out upon Him. They are imputed to Him. They're credited to Him. And so He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. At the instant that we trust in Christ as our Savior, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us so that when God's righteousness looks at us, He he approves us and declares us to be just because we possess Christ's righteousness, not because of anything we've done, but because we possess Christ's righteousness. Everything is based on the possession of Christ's righteousness. Every blessing in our life is based not on what we do, but on our possession of Christ's righteousness. So because we have that righteousness, the justice of God is free to bless us. And that was the point of Genesis 15.6, is that God's blessing of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham was due to the fact that Abraham possessed that imputed righteousness. Not because Abraham was a good guy, not because Abraham was somehow special, but because Abraham possessed that righteousness. And that's always the basis for blessing. Once you get a hold of that, and I don't know how many times I've taught that or will teach that, one day a big light bulb may go off over your head and all of a sudden you'll relax in your Christian life because you'll realize that everything is dependent just on one thing that you possess the righteousness of Christ. And that's what it's all about. It's grace. It's not works. So that's justification by faith. So we've covered the first two, the Abrahamic covenant, justification by faith alone for salvation. Then we come to the third, and this is the one that really gets a lot of folks confused, is when they get into James chapter 2, 21 to 23. Because you'll often find people say, well, over there in in Galatians uh, 2.16, it says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. No, excuse me, wrong verse. That it's not by, uh, that no man is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. But all of a sudden you get over here to James 2, and James 2 is saying that... Abraham was justified by works. Now, which is it? And some people say, well, see, James was contradicted by Paul, and there's this contradiction in the Bible. But you have to understand the framework of both of those, both of those epistles. Galatians is written to explain phase one justification, what we just got through talking about. James is talking about a completely different subject. At the beginning of James 2, actually in James 1, starting about verse 20 or 21, he's talking about being quick to hear and slow to speak. And he talks about being quick to hear is being disciplined in the study of God's Word. Starting in verse 22, but be doers of the word, which means to be an applier of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourself. So in the early part of that section in James, what James is setting up is, is, is a comparison. You hear and then you apply. When you get to the second part of that section, starting in James chapter 2, verse 14, the parallel to hearing is believing. 
And the parallel to applying is works. So he's talking to believers now in both places. He's not talking to unbelievers. They're, they're already saved. This was clear back in James chapter uh, James 1, 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. He brought us forth. We're already brought forth. We're already saved. So we're not talking about justification phase 1 starting in verse 20. We're talking about how a justified person is to live the Christian life. They are to hear the word and apply the word. They're to believe the Word and do works that are in keeping with what the Word taught. He's still talking about believing. He's still talking about hearing and application. So he comes to verse 21 and he gives us a, uh, an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, historically, James the, the reference here in James 2.21 is to Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Let me see. Genesis 15.6, 15 from 22 is 7. That's seven chapters later. In time, it's about 40 or 50 years later. So which is it? Was Abraham justified in Genesis 15? Or is he justified in Genesis 22? Well, we're talking about two different kinds of justification. Genesis 15.6 is talking about his justification before God. Genesis 22 is talking about the vindication of all that he believed and learned in the process. So that he is demonstrating... Which light was that that just flickered? This one? Okay. So Abraham is talking about a justification before God that takes place at faith alone in Christ alone. But then you learn doctrine. You hear the Word. You hear the Word. You apply the Word. You do the Word. You hear the Word. You believe the Word. You hear it. You believe it. And you put it into practice. And we saw all those tests that we're going to get to in a little while. All those tests in Abraham's life. And those tests produce maturity. That's what James is talking about in James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will have its mature result. And so what James is illustrating in with Abraham is maturity and his faith, that is what he believed, what he learned, what he heard, and what he applied, produce spiritual growth we, so that when he comes to the final test, his final exam in Genesis 22, he is vindicating all the doctrine that he's learned. He's vindicating the truth of God's Word. And his life becomes a testimony and evidence of the truth of God's Word. So James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith, that is trusting the word, the doctrine, the truth that he had learned, do you see that faith was working together with his works? You can't separate the truth. You can't separate hearing from application. It's not just some sort of intellectual trip that we're on. You see that faith is working together with his works, and by works, that is application, faith was completed, not made perfect, but completed. It's that word I always go to, teleao. Some form of the verb teleao or, or uh, uh, teleos, that it's made complete. In other words, it's brought to maturity. That's what teleao refers to. That's what the same word James used back in James 1 uh, 4, where he said, Let patience have its mature work, its completing work, its perfect work. So this is just an illustration of that, bringing, tying everything together. And then in verse 23, uh, James says, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now didn't we read this already in relation to Romans 4? That's right. Both Paul in Romans 4 and James in James 2 go to Genesis 15.6 to support their position. 
Now, why are they doing that? What James is saying, it was fulfilled. See, what Paul's talking about is when he's justified. But his Christian life is brought to, or his spiritual life is brought to completion, brought to fulfillment. The justification that we have at salvation, phase one, is the beginning. And it's brought to completion. It's brought to fulfillment as we learn the word and apply the word. And the result is that Abraham is called the friend of God. This is tremendous praise because he has matured so greatly. And then we come to verse 24, which is the real mistranslation. Every, every version almost mistranslates this. James 2.24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now that's just dead wrong. It looks the way it's translated in most versions is that a man is justified by works, one kind of justification, and not by faith only. In other words, it's faith plus works. The only there in the English translation modifies the noun faith. So it makes it look as if there is, it's not only by faith, but it's by faith plus works. So what you'll often hear from the Lordship camp is while the faith that saves, while you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Let me say that again. While you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And what they mean by that is if it's real, genuine, saving faith, then the way you know it is by the works that accompany the faith. And if you don't have the right kind of works, then you didn't have the right kind of faith. In other words, you can have a faith in Jesus that's not saving. And they try to argue that from a number of positions that don't work and they're outside of our study. But, but they want the key place they go to is after uh, Jesus did the miracle of turning the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. And after that, it goes to Jerusalem and it says he did many more miracles and many people believed in him. The Greek is pistuo ace. Believed in him. And I've heard Lordship people say, but that's not a real qualitative faith because it's just a faith based on miracles. It's like they're trying to say it's an emotional thing or whatever. But he said faith based on miracles is not real saving faith. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. John says these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if, if faith based on signs is, is not salvific, then why did John even write the Gospel? Because he is saying that the reason he tells the signs is so people will believe in Jesus. Now, right after Jesus performed the miracles and people believed on him, he says, but Jesus didn't trust himself to him. And Lordship people go to that and say, see, if they were real believers, if they were real believers, they could trust him. I often offer, often want to offer them the Brooklyn Bridge to see if they'll buy it. I mean, I'm a believer. I'm trustworthy. Why don't you buy it from me? I mean, how, how gullible can you get that every believer, just because he's regenerate, is trustworthy? None of us are truly trustworthy in every area. The point, the reason Jesus doesn't trust himself to him is their agenda is still to make him a political Messiah, and he's not going to trust himself to that. They haven't learned enough doctrine. They're saved, but they haven't learned enough doctrine yet to realize uh, what's going on. But the real problem here in James 2.24 is a bad translation. The word that is translated only is the Greek word monon, which is where we get like the word mono for one. Okay, remember back in the days when you had stereo and before that you had mono? Don't raise your hands. You'll give away your age. Kids today don't even know what an LP is. Gee. Mono, it means only or one. But it is an adverb. Notice that right there. It is an adverb. Now, an adverb modifies a verb, right? Basic sixth grade or fifth grade grammar. But only in the way this sentence is translated, only is an adverb, it has an L-Y on it. I remember learning that in fifth or sixth grade. If it has an L-Y, it's an adverb. But it's modifying a noun. 
That's not right. That's an adjective modifies a noun. So this is misplaced. And what we should have is a verb that it modifies. But the verb here, if you go back in the sense, the verb is over here. It's justified. And the way that, Paul, uh, the way that James is writing here, he's really left the verb out of the second clause. It should read, if you put everything in, it should read, you see then that a man is justified by works and not justified by faith only. But the only should modify faith, it should modify the verb that's not there. So it should read, you see then that a man is justified by works and not only or not justified only by faith. Now for those of you who haven't caught it yet, the way it's translated in English here, justified by works and not by faith only indicates one kind of faith, a faith plus works. But when you move the only to where it modifies the adverb, it indicates two different kinds of justification. You see then that a man is justified by works and not justified only by faith. Justification by faith alone is the primary justification. That's what gets you eternal life. That's what gets you at a destiny in heaven. But the justification by works is the completion of the growth process. It's a vindication of everything you've believed about God, all the doctrine that you've learned, so that it, you are vindicated before man and the angels in the angelic conflict. So this indicates that Abraham is spiritually mature. This is what happens in, by uh, uh, Genesis chapter twenty. 22. So, we have the Abrahamic covenant that's the foundation. Then we have justification by faith alone for salvation, which is the starting point. Then we get justification or vindication before men, which is the end point. Notice, we haven't seen any tests since Isaac. No more tests, no more spiritual challenges for Abraham. He has reached spiritual maturity. Not that he didn't have any, it's just that's not the point that the writer's making anymore. Now, how did he get there? How did he get from point A to point Z? And this is walking by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, and, and of course, Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 gives us a review of his offering up of Isaac. So how did he get there? Walking by faith. Now, that's the process, and he did it through 13 tests that he passed, and we're not going to have time to go through that tonight. What we've done is we just reviewed the first three major doctrines, the Abrahamic covenant, justification and salvation, and justification vindication. Next time, we'll come back and we'll do another complete survey from Genesis 12 to 25 of Abraham's walk by faith, looking at those 13 tests he passed just to consolidate that into our thinking so we have one solid review that pulls it all together. And then we'll look at the other two elements briefly, election and the foundation for missions. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study this tremendous life of Abraham to this example that has been set before us of a man who who trusted you, who went through the process of growth like we all do, failed many times as we all do, but because of your faithfulness and because of your grace, you continued to work in his life and brought him to spiritual maturity, which is the goal for each of us. Father, we pray that we might not lose sight of the goal, but we might realize that you have saved us for a purpose, and that is for good works according to Ephesians 2.10. We pray that you would help us to pull these things together that we studied that the Holy Spirit will use it to challenge us in our spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.